In the late 1800s, there was a British revivalist by the name of Henry Varley who had a conversation with a young American pastor who happened to be in Dublin, Ireland at the time. That young pastor's name was Dwight L. Moody. And Varley encouraged him and challenged him, and Moody came back to the United States to continue his ministry. But the conversation they had before he left really changed the course of his life and ministry. A year later, Moody went back overseas and he met up with Varley again and he asked him, he said, do you remember the conversation that we had a year ago? And he said, well, yeah, I remember that we talked. He said, do you remember what you said? And he didn't remember exactly what he had said. But Moody remembered. He said, this is what you told me. Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And then he went on and said this. He said, those were the words sent to my soul through you from the living God. As I crossed the wide Atlantic, the boards of the deck of the vessel were engraved with them. And when I reached Chicago, the very paving stones seemed marked with Moody. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. Under the power of those words, I have come back to England. And I felt that I must not let more time pass until I let you know how God has used your words to my inmost soul. Moody went on, inspired by that challenge to preach revivals around the world. He led thousands to faith in Christ. He planted a, and established a church. He um, began the, the Chicago, founded the Chicago Bible Institute, which, of course, was renamed later to Moody Bible Institute. It's still very much uh, in uh, active uh, uh, ministry today as they're preparing those that are, are wanting to go into ministry. And so this incredible legacy of God working powerfully through D.L. Moody started with someone challenging him with this. The world is yet to see what God will do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. And Moody said, I want to go all in. I want to do the best that I can to be that man who is fully devoted to God and see how God works through that. And so I, I read stories like that. And I say, and I, I think, church family, what would happen if all of us decided we were going to go all in? What what if we said we are going to leave half-hearted discipleship on the sidelines and we are going to pursue Christ with everything that is in us? We're just going to go all in in our faith. What might God do through that? And I get excited about that. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to to dive into Scripture over the next uh, couple of months, actually. And and let me just say this in the very beginning, our foundation for all of this. We're simply responding to what Christ has already done for us. This is not a, hey, let's you know, do things in our own ability for God kind of a thing. It's no, look at what Jesus has already done. The work's already been accomplished for us. But as 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So our love for God, our desire to go all in, is simply a response to what Christ has done, who Jesus is. And when we, if we really understand what Christ has done, I mean, he, he left his throne in heaven where he is worshipped 24-7, was born into this world in an insignificant little town in, in Bethlehem. He lived a life as a common person. He ultimately was... Brought to trial, he was convicted, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross. 
All of that for us. All of that because he was becoming the sacrifice for our sins. I mean, Jesus himself said this early on. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his point. That was his, his purpose for coming. And so he did all of that for us, and he died in our place. His broken body was taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb that couldn't hold him. And on the third day, Jesus comes back to life, appears to his disciples over a period of 40 days, Then he ascends back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father now and will return again as the victorious conqueror. Jesus has done all of that. And so when we understand that and we realize he's rescued us, he has died in my place, he's covered the the cost of my sin for me so that I can be forgiven and made new. And when when I really get that, how is there any response other than a wholehearted, I'm all in, I'm all yours? And this idea that, that we have come up with in the church today, that being a Christian just means, you know, saying a prayer or coming to church or being nice to people or putting a little money in the plate once in a while or whatever it may be. I mean, th- we have come up with this, this totally unbiblical view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you see Jesus calling, he's calling people to be all in. Now, we might look at that and say, okay, Jesus was all in for us, but, but he was the son of God. I mean, I'm not God, and so I can't really do that. And that's why I'm glad we have so many examples of ordinary people in the Bible that went all in. And so although Christ is our foundation for everything, we're going to look at several different people over the next several weeks in the Old Testament and New Testament, starting with Elisha today. But we're going to look at Noah, Abraham, Jonathan, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to look at, in the New Testament, at the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet. We're going to look at Zacchaeus, at Paul. There's so many different examples in the Bible of ordinary people. They weren't born spiritual giants. These are people that were just regular people like you and me who said, I'm going to go all in. And I might point out who didn't always get it right. These are people who messed up, but, but we can look back at these times and say, oh, I see where... Their heart was, was fully devoted. And so we're going to start with Elisha today. Don't get, that, don't get him confused with Elijah. That's a little confusing that Elisha and Elijah are right there together. But just remember, Elijah comes first because J comes before S. So if you ever have to remember which one is first, there's a little, little trick for you. But Elijah was the prophet before Elisha. And we're going to see Elijah coming to Elisha today and anointing him and That'll, that'll be our passage in 1 Kings 19 here in a minute. But before we get there, back up just a little bit and set the stage for what was happening in chapter 18. Chapter 18 is this famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There were 850 of these pagan prophets. They called them together up on Mount Carmel and they had this showdown. And the deal was, let's build an altar to our God And whichever one answers by fire, that's the real God. And so, of course, the prophets of Baal built their altar. Nothing happened for hours and hours and hours. And then Elijah builds an altar, puts a sacrifice on it. But not only that, you may recall he doused it with water, so much so that it made it. They dug a trench around it and filled it with water. So very dramatic picture of God showing up and God sends fire from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice on the altar, but the entire altar, the stones, the dirt, the water, everything just, just gets consumed by God. And the, the people 
are, of course, convinced that that's the one true God. These 850 false prophets are put to death. And you would think Elijah goes riding off like Rudy on the shoulders of the people, you know, as they celebrate going off. But then you get to the beginning of chapter 19, and right after this happens, Elijah gets this death threat from the queen, and he freaks out. And, you know, we might look at chapter 18, Elijah, and go, I can't relate to somebody like that. But then we see chapter 19, Elijah, who's running in fear. We're like, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little bit more that I have in common with him. Even though he did great things and was a great man of faith, he had those moments where he struggled. And so God appears to him, and, and uh, just a, there's a whole lot in there, by the way, that we could talk about over a long period of time. But summarize it, he speaks to him in a gentle whisper, and he tells him two things. He says, you need to go anoint a new king over Aram, and secondly... You need to go anoint a new prophet, Elisha. So God handpicks Elisha. Elijah was in a place where he said, I'm the only one left. Right? All the, Jezebel's killed all the other prophets. I'm the only one left. She's trying to kill me too. And God says, you're not the only one left. In fact, I'm going to give you another person. I'm going to give you a cohort to come alongside you and then somebody that can eventually succeed you and, and keep your ministry going. And he points out too at the end of chapter 18, that there were 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And I say that before we jump in and read uh, in chapter 19, just to remind you of this. If you're really going all in in your faith, and you're, you're serious about, yeah, I want to follow Christ with all my heart, sometimes it might feel lonely. Sometimes it might feel like, gosh, I just, there aren't other people, especially young people. I mean, going up today in, in, the, in the culture that we're in, if you're a young person who is desiring to really follow God wholeheartedly, you're probably going to be different from most people around you. Uh, most people are going to live for their own personal pleasure and whatever they want to do. And so if your desire is to honor God, then yeah, it's, your life's going to look a little different and it can feel a little lonely sometimes. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily go away when you become an adult, does it? There's still that pressure around you, and sometimes it still feels lonely, like, man, am I the only one? Uh, that sounds kind of self-righteous. That's not, that's not what I mean, but a desire to follow God and sometimes feeling like there aren't others on that same page. Let me just encourage you with this. There are. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that the body of Christ, the church is so important, so we can come together to remind each other that we are in this together, and hopefully we're all in this wholeheartedly, um, but there are others out there who have a desire to, to, to go all in. And so we're going to encourage each other, and we're going to challenge each other over the next several weeks here to do just that. Let's start with 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. One of the things that jumps out to me from this passage is the fact that it says there were 12 yoke of oxen that, that were plowing the field. He was driving the 12th pair. Uh, a yoke, by the way, if you're not familiar with that, was the wooden harness that would connect two oxen together so that they could harness one another's strength as they were plowing together. There were 12 of these, 12 pairs of oxen. That means that, that this was a fairly wealthy family. 
They had a lot of land to need 12 different pairs of these oxen and to be able to afford them and all the equipment that they would need in order to, to do what they needed to do. That tells me that this is a fairly, fairly wealthy family. And that's important to note because Elisha is about to leave that behind. Elisha is about to leave the family business, the farming business, behind to become a prophet. He's about to leave behind a future inheritance that would come in the form of land being passed down and those kinds of things. He's, he's leaving some of that behind. And so it's a significant commitment that he makes. Uh, but the other thing I noticed, it seems a little odd to us maybe in our culture is it, there's no record of what their relationship was like you know did they know each other was there some something before this um, quite possibly but it just says that Elijah went up to him threw his cloak around him now maybe he said something to him too I don't know it'd be really awkward if he didn't but what is recorded in the Bible is he just puts his cloak around him now keep in mind that this cloak is a significant it carries it carries a lot of significance because a little bit later on, in, um, as the story continues on, we see that before Elijah was taken up to heaven, that he took this cloak, struck water with it, and the water parted, and they walked across. And then as he's being taken up to heaven, the cloak falls down, Elisha picks it up, strikes the water with it, and the waters part. This cloak was a visible symbol of the anointing of God that was on Elijah. So when it says that he put his cloak on Elisha, what he's saying is, I'm passing my anointing on to you. I'm inviting you to become a prophet in the same, uh, same, same line that I'm in here. And then he allows Elisha to respond. And we know that because it says that Elisha had to run after him. So apparently Elijah did, and then began to walk off, and Elisha comes back after him, and he says, let me go tell my family goodbye, and Elijah's response is, go back. He says, what have I done to you? In other words, I'm not forcing you to do anything. Elijah is allowing Elisha to decide, how are you going to respond to God's call? It's a great question. It's a great question every single one of us needs to answer. How do we respond when God says, this is what I have for you next? And Elisha simply wants to tell his family goodbye, but then he really is serious about following after Elijah. And we know that because he, he, um, he, he, what he does at the end of this chapter that we'll get to here in just a little bit. But the first thing I want us to see today is this, that Elisha willingly abandoned his old life. That's part of what being all in looked like for him, to willingly abandon his old life way of life. He left his family. He left uh, the comfort that that would bring, the financial security that that would bring, and he left that behind to follow after Elijah. Now, sometimes family can make following God's call more difficult. It shouldn't be that way. What should happen is that family members ought to encourage one another and say, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, I'm going to support you and encourage you to do that. But the truth of the matter is this. Um, sometimes it can be more difficult. Now, we don't know exactly how their family responded here, uh, but we do know that the dynamic within that family was about to change. Not that Elisha was going to cease to be a son or a sibling, but the relationship's going to be different. Now he's not home. He's not living there anymore. He's not part of their 
you know, taking care of the property and farming the land and all that like he has been up to this point. Everything's about to change. That dynamic's about to change. And yet, Elisha is willing to leave anyway. And it reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36. He said, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Guys, that's not the way it should be. But Jesus is speaking to a reality. He said, it's going to be this way at times. There are going to be circumstances where one person in a family is serious about following Jesus and the rest of the family is not. And so that's going to create some major tension, maybe even to the point of turning family members against one another. And Jesus just says, I'm going to warn you that this is going to come. Now, it isn't always maybe quite that dramatic, but I've seen many, many people from within our church family that have wrestled with taking a next step in their faith and, and being all in and what God is calling them to do because of how it will impact their family dynamic if they take that step. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Uh, the most common one, there are a lot of different ones, but the most common one is people that come from an upbringing where maybe they were baptized as an infant, and that's part of the family tradition, and they come to faith in Christ, and they realize, you know, biblically, baptism is an expression of that personal faith in Jesus, and so they start to wrestle with, should I undergo believer's baptism? But here's the, the holdup. What will my family think? What, what would happen, what, you know, they would be insulted in some way or feel like I've turned against the, the faith of our family. And I've seen this time and time and time again where the family dynamic makes it really difficult to take the next step of faith. And if you're in a place like that, my heart goes out to you and it, you know, it shouldn't be that way. But I have to also just say this, that Jesus made it pretty clear. Are you going to follow me first and foremost above everything else? Even if that means going a different direction from the direction your family would want you to go, I want you to follow me. Difficult when it comes to that type of situation, but uh, Elisha left his family behind. We don't know exactly how they responded, but uh, we can assume that you know, it, it, it made his life harder. He was going to be Less wealthy and less comfortable as a result of following God's call. And frankly, that's usually the case, right? Usually when we follow God's lead, it doesn't make us wealthier or more comfortable. That's just the, that's just the truth. And yet we have a decision to make of, okay, what, what is most important? Am I going to, to follow? And sometimes it may cost us something. But then I read something by Mark Batterson in his book. It's called All In. And I thought this was a great reminder, great quote. He said, I don't think anyone has ever sacrificed anything for God. If you get back more than you gave up, have you sacrificed anything at all? The eternal reward always outweighs the temporal sacrifice. That's a great perspective. Yes, it may look like a sacrifice in this life, but when we get back eternally more than we give up, is it really a sacrifice? No, it's really not. But... Sometimes it can be difficult. And so we look to examples in Scripture, heroes such as Elisha, who said, I'm going to follow after God regardless of what it costs me. But then we apply that to our relationship with Christ, our desire to follow Jesus. And listen to what he said in Luke 9, 
23 and 24, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Guys, Jesus made it clear that you cannot, we cannot follow him half-heartedly. Either we're all in or we're not in at all. There's no provision there for this idea that, you know, I can just kind of have Jesus as a part of my life, but then just, you know, live my life the way I want to over here and then come to church on Sunday and get a little Jesus there. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. What we see is this call, which is a very strong and a very dramatic call to say, you got to take up your cross daily, meaning you got to die, be willing to die to yourself. Take up your cross daily, every single day, and follow me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then you get into passages like Romans 10, 9, and 10 that describe what salvation means. And it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is, what's the word? Lord. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, part of coming to faith in the first place is a profession Jesus is Lord. Doesn't mean we won't ever sin again. Doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. But it means that we can't go into this with the idea that I'm still in control of my life. It's a surrender. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who is in control of my life from this point forward. And Elisha is a great example of somebody that said, I'm, I'm going to go all in. I'm not going to do this half-heartedly. And so he asked for permission to go back and tell his family goodbye, which Elijah grants. It's hard to say all those Elijahs and Elishas back-to-back all the time. But he does grant him permission to do that. It's a little different, by the way. Did anybody, when you read this, did it, did it bring to mind something that Jesus said. I wonder if anybody heard this thought. I think I've heard a similar story before about someone wanting to go back and tell their family goodbye. And Luke chapter 9, in totally different response, because Jesus, a man comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, and Jesus, um, but then he says to him, first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And listen to the response Jesus gave in Luke 9, 62. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So in this case, Jesus is essentially saying, no, you can't go back. If you're going to follow me, follow me. Now, we have to, I think, understand some of what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus knows the hearts of people, and he knew that this particular individual, by saying, can I go home and tell my family goodbye, that that was just an excuse for not following them. It wasn't a, I'm going to tell him goodbye because I'm leaving and, and becoming a wholehearted follower like Elisha was doing. So two totally different circumstances in Elisha's case. Elijah says, sure, go back, tell him goodbye. And, and then he did that and he came and he followed him wholeheartedly. And we know that he was all in because of the way he responded. Look, let me just read this again, verse 21. It says, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. They set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Oh, my goodness. You talk about being all in, right? You talk about wholehearted commitment. I'm going to slaughter the oxen that I was using to plow the field with, and I'm going to burn the plowing equipment in order to cook it. That is what I call being all in. 
So the second thing I want to point out to you today is that Elisha demonstrated radical commitment to God. And the implication is, so should we. What would it look like for us to slaughter the oxen and to burn the plowing equipment? To say, I am 100% all in. Now, don't you think that people that looked at this could easily criticize Elisha for what he did? I mean, after all, why not sell it? Sell the oxen, sell the equipment, use that money to fund the ministry. It seems like an awfully radical decision to kill them and eat them and burn the equipment used to plow the fields with. But it's what God told him to do. It's what what he knew he needed to do to remove any possibility that he might go back to his old way of life later on. I think that's the point here. Elisha was saying, I want to remove any temptation that would draw me back into something that's going to take me away from what God is calling me to do. And I think, wow. What would that look like for us to say, okay, God is leading me in this new area. What do I need to do to, to burn the plowing equipment, to slaughter the oxen? How do I get rid of any possibility that I might go back to this old way of life that is not what God has for me right now. Sometimes we have to do things that seem radical, that might seem crazy to other people around us. I want to share a, a cool story with you that uh, Stephen actually put me onto this, and he's friends uh, with this young lady's dad. Her name is Leah Church, and we're going to roll a video of her. She was a basketball player. This is her senior year of high school in this video. And little girl can shoot a basketball. I'm just going to tell you, as you'll see when we go here. Um, she, when she was a senior in high school, decided she would try to set the world record for the most three-pointers in one minute. So she just starts shooting. As you see, one after the other starts shooting. And you can watch it for a good little while, and you are not going to see her miss. It's incredible. Just one after the other. You know, it's boom, 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 boom. Just one. She makes 32 three-pointers in one minute. Sets this new world record. But why stop there, right? So she goes on and continues. One after the other. 55 in a row that she makes before she finally misses. This, this, this girl can shoot a basketball. Pretty impressive, right? So she gets a scholarship to North Carolina. She goes and becomes a North Carolina Tar Heel first couple of years. She enjoys it, uh, enjoys the whole experience. And then they have a coaching change after her sophomore year. A new coach comes in, different culture. Uh, she's becoming less and less comfortable with the culture and the dynamics on the team. And um, this is what she said, and I quote her. She, she said, I started seeing that there were expectations for me to participate in the party lifestyle and condone things that don't line up with my biblical beliefs. I choose not to drink and I'm choosing to save myself for marriage. I said no to a lot of things which made team bonding challenging. And she said, I began to lose the joy through my junior year of, of college. And then uh, when the coaches announced what some of their causes were that they would be supporting her, her senior year, she said, that's it, I can't do it. And Leah gave up her scholarship and the ability to play her senior year of college basketball and walked away because she said, I can't do this and still be faithful to my God. Her desire to honor God was more important to her than to follow this lifelong dream that she'd always had. That's a radical choice. 
And I love that story and I love that example because it reminds me that sometimes we have to make radical decisions when it comes to going all in in our faith. Sometimes we have to leave some stuff behind, church. Sometimes we have to slaughter the oxen. Sometimes we have to burn the plowing equipment. We remove any possibility that we might go back into those old ways of life. And there may be people around you that if you make a decision like that are going to say, you're crazy, you're not being reasonable, you're going too far. They may call you a zealot or a radical or whatever else, but so be it. You know why? Because Jesus gave everything for us. So why wouldn't we respond by going all in? Why wouldn't we give him everything that we have to give? So what do you need to leave behind today? What are those things that you need to, to slaughter? What, are, what is that equipment that needs to be burned? What is it in your life that you need to make a radical decision to say, this is no longer who I am. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to remove the possibility that I could go back to that. What's holding you back? Now is the time to go all in. Now is the time to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Now is the time to figure out what God will do through a man or a woman who is fully consecrated to him. So don't let anything hold you back. If you know that you haven't been all in in your relationship with God, I want to challenge you and just encourage you to go all in. And the reason we do that is because what we receive in Jesus is so much better. It's so much better. Nothing will ever compare to Him. And so we go all in. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray today that you will convict us. I, I pray, Lord, where there are things that are hidden, where there's been hidden sin, that maybe, Lord, that will just come to the surface today. And, Lord, that there would be a willingness to deal with that sin. And, Lord, that we would be honest before you and that we would put everything out on the table. And, Lord, that we would go all in. That's my prayer. And I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus.